So we are in uh, the message and mission series, uh, gospel-shaped outreach, taking a look, evaluating, hopefully um, strengthening our, uh, our ability and our uh, likelihood and our skill set in reaching out, sharing the gospel with others. Uh, last week was the first week, and we talked about how we're doing. We kind of asked the questions, the diagnostic questions about how we're doing as a church and individuals when it comes to outreach and evangelism. Uh, I think we've done some good things as far as outreach, blessing, serving, uh, ministering to our community. We can always do more, of course. Uh, but evangelism, which we defined in Bible study last week as the act of telling someone uh, the gospel uh, or good news of Jesus is different from simply blessing the community or serving the community. Uh, we want to do both and, right? Not either or. Uh, and we asked in last week's message if we sense our obligation to share and if we're eager to share. We had a passage where Paul uh, in Scripture was declaring both his obligation and his eagerness to share the gospel with others, the good news of Jesus, because of what Jesus had done in his life. And so as we consider, and kind of laid out the case last week, what Jesus has done for us, um, hopefully presented that obligation and stirred in us an eagerness to share the grace of God with others um, who are far from him. This week we're asking and, uh, and hopefully answering, at least in part, the question, who is Jesus? Uh, this good news we seek to share, this new life we've been given, it's all centered on the person and work of Jesus. So we need to be familiar with Jesus. We need to know Jesus. Um, others need to know him and may ask about him. He's the only one uh, that we're pointing people to, right? He's the one uh, that our lives are surrendered to. So who is he? Um, there's just a few aspects we're going to look at this morning. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 1. Um, but uh, I would encourage you to go beyond what we talk about today, uh, read more of Scripture, read the Gospels about who Jesus is, um, because He is so many things. Um, outside of Scripture, we have this great book called Who is Jesus? Uh, we give these to first-time guests, um, just free gift to them uh, about who is Jesus, but if you uh, need one, uh, grab one. They're out there at the front table. Um, it's even just looking at it again this morning, I thought, man, this would be a great series too to dive into because there's just so many things uh, about who Jesus is. And so someday down the road, we'll probably do a, a Who is Jesus series. Um, so this morning, again, it's just a few aspects that we're going to look at, um, hopefully some of the more crucial aspects of who Jesus is in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 19. It says... I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance uh, that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. This book of Revelation, uh, it only gets weirder from this point on. Um, it's a vision that John is given from God while on the island of Patmos, as he declared. He just stated that that's where he was when he received this vision. He says he's there on account of the Word of God. So uh, what he means is, is that Patmos was uh, a place that had a Roman like prison settlement on it, uh, and that's where they put people who were dangerous to good order, right? A, th- a threat to the kind of Roman way of life. John finds himself there because he's part of this Christian movement, which is turning over the Roman culture, right? It's countercultural, and so uh, it messes with things. Um, We talked about, I don't remember if it was Bible study last week or community group at some point. Um, There's a a place in in Acts where Paul is uh, sharing the gospel, and he starts to share it with the people who are selling idols or buying idols, uh, and it starts to hurt the economy, right? This was a big part of how people were making money, was selling these idols to be worshipped. And so if someone comes in and starts preaching about the gospel and preaches against idol worship and people stop buying them, then these people's livelihood is messed up. And so it's this kind of idea that Christianity overturns culture, uh, not by the sword and not even by legislation, but just in turning hearts towards Jesus. And the way that they live changes. And so they no longer are um, in allegiance to the Roman way of life, which Rome has a problem with. And so John finds himself on Patmos, where he has this vision. He receives a vision that starts with messages for seven churches, but also includes this description of Jesus as John sees him. So let's unpack a few things uh, from this passage that show us um, or confirm uh, things to us that we know about Jesus from other places in Scripture. The first thing we see is that Jesus is human and divine, or that he is fully man and fully God. Jesus is fully man and fully God. The $5 phrase for this is the idea, this idea is called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. Uh, Referring to, uh, hypostatic referring to distinct nature and union referring to joining together. So in Jesus, we have the human nature and the divine nature joining together. Not mixing or corrupting one another, uh, but in union in the person of Jesus. So he is both everything it means to be human, but without sin, and everything it means to be God, without corruption. And when we say that the Father, Son, and Spirit are divine, we mean that they are perfect and completely other, holy, all-powerful, ever-present, all-knowing. Divine is different from supreme or elite or great. Uh, Remember, in my book, Michael Jordan is the GOAT, the greatest basketball player of all time. He is elite, supreme, great, tops. First place, whatever you want to call him. But he wasn't perfect. He didn't shoot 100% from the field. He didn't shoot 100% from the free throw line. He didn't win every game he ever played, right? So he might be the best. He might be the greatest. 
but he's not divine. He's not perfect. He's not flawless. God is divine. God is perfect, unbeatable, unstoppable, without weakness or faults, totally other and above and glorious. So there are elements of this divinity that John sees when Jesus shows up. But he sees one like a son of man, it says in verse 13. It's the basic form or appearance of the flesh and blood human Jesus, but the description goes on to detail a person very not like a son of man. You can see the glory of God in John's description. Eyes like fire, feet like burnished bronze, voice like roaring waters, sword coming out of his mouth, face shining like the sun in full strength. It's this sight that has John falling down like a dead man. We cannot really wrap our minds around the full glory of God revealed. Even these glimpses of the glory of God are dropping people. But these glorious divine aspects are accompanying a human form. There's a human body as the context or baseline for these fantastic elements. Why? Because Jesus is the God-man, fully God, but also fully man. The Bible says God is spirit, but God the Son took on flesh, and this body is eternally his. It wasn't on loan until his time on earth was finished. Jesus still exists in a physical body today and will forevermore. Why did he take on flesh? So that a man could take the punishment owed by man, and that in his glorification, everything it means to be human could be redeemed and glorified. Jesus identifies with us in his humanity. He knows what it means to be thirsty, tired, hungry, hurt, sad. He knows what it means to be tempted by outside influences. He lived a sinless life in that body and then willingly laid it down in love for us. This is the second significant answer to who is Jesus that we see in this passage. Jesus lived died, and rose again. In that order, right, Andrew? He lived, he died, and rose again. Jesus declares this about himself in verse 18, and it's such a strong declaration as one who is currently alive. It may go without saying that he had to be alive before he could die, but just wanted to be very clear on that point. Jesus took on flesh, was born as a baby, lived a sinless life of perfect obedience, And not just like a person we think of as like, oh, that person's perfect, a goody two-shoes or a squeaky clean kind of person. That's as close as we, mere mortals, come to perfection. But Jesus, being not just fully man but also fully God, was not able to sin. This is called the impeccability of Jesus. Another $5 word. You might hear impeccable nowadays to refer to perfection um, or flawlessness We throw it around for people with great fashion sense or grammar. But it comes from a Latin term meaning no sin. Concerning Jesus, he was literally impeccable. No sin in him. This is because of his divine nature, which we looked at already. So he lived on this earth. There was a real person in history who was born and lived and talked and loved and ate and walked around just like you and me. Just like Abraham Lincoln or Alexander the Great or whoever else we learn about in history but haven't actually met in person. But we regard them as historical, actual figures. Jesus also, a historical, actual figure, a real person who walked this earth. 
And when the time came for him to die, he laid down his life. Even though the circumstances looked as if the bad guys were calling the shots and arresting, beating, and killing him, Jesus says in John 10, 17 and 18, I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. He laid down his life out of love. His death paid the price for our sin, but not his sin as we already covered, right? He had no sin of his own to pay for it. So his death acted as payment for sinners all over the globe throughout the entire history and future of humanity. Sin requires punishment. Jesus took this punishment when he suffered and died, but he didn't stay dead. He says right here in Revelation 1 that he is the living one and that he is alive forevermore. This is because after dying, as was foretold and promised, he rose from the dead, as was foretold and promised. He died that we might be forgiven, and he rose again that we might be resurrected to new life with him as well. In coming back to life, he exercises his power and authority over sin and death. They don't get the last word. His followers went to visit his body after he died, but did not find him there. What they found was an empty tomb and a couple of angels who said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Jesus called the first fruits of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Because all who believe in him for salvation will be resurrected as well. All who surrender to him in faith will be resurrected and get glorified bodies to enjoy for all eternity because he rose again. He lived, he died, he rose again. Muhammad has a tomb. Joseph Smith has a grave. So does Confucius. L. Ron Hubbard and all the popes too. Buddha has bones on display in different places, and his ashes were scattered. Elvis has a grave. David Koresh didn't come back to life after dying. John Lennon's ashes were scattered in Central Park. Some of these were just religious leaders. Some claimed to be more than that. Some of these people were worshipped as gods and treated like gods. But the only person to claim divinity and walk this earth that died and didn't stay dead is Jesus Christ. He's alive. And for all of us who trust in him, we can say, just like Job way back in the Old Testament during the time of Genesis, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he not only lives, he reigns. This is our third point this morning. Jesus reigns over the past, present, and future. Jesus says in verse 17 that he is the first and the last. He says in verse 18 that he has the keys of death and Hades. And he mentions in verse 19 that he's got control over what is and what is to come. If Jesus is divine, fully God, then he has eternally existed with the Father and Spirit. He has no beginning and will have no end. While Jesus took on flesh in time, the Son of God is outside of time. Don't try to wrap your minds around this. It's a crazy thing to try to grasp because God is completely other. Remember, he transcends. If we could figure him out, then he wouldn't be God. But the Bible tells us that he has existed for all eternity, and not just as a participant 
or observer, but as ruler and Lord of everything. He's got the keys. At my former church where I worked for nearly 20 years, I had so many different roles over the course of my career there that I had acquired keys to almost everything, almost every place that had a lock. Uh, this is before they converted to digital, like, electronic key fobs. Everything was, you had to have a key to get here or there or wherever. I had keys that people sometimes with more seniority than me did not have um, because I either was grandfathered in or I used to work maintenance, and so I had to have a key here, and then I just kind of kept those keys because I had been there so long. I had a key to the worship center. I had a key to the interior doors in the student building, just kind of this random collection that my role may not even require that key anymore, but I still had it. Most people only had keys to the main areas where they were expected to work, but I had keys to lots of places. And when you have keys, you wear this badge of responsibility because you have access to places that others don't. Whoever is in charge gets access to everything, and everyone else has to defer to them. You need to get somewhere, you have to ask the person with the keys to get there. When I sub at the school, the classroom sometimes is locked, and I don't know why I still do this, but I'll ask a neighboring teacher, oh, can you unlock this door? No, sorry, I can't. I only have a key to my room. Where do I have to go? To the higher-ups, the administration. They have keys to everywhere. Jesus is claiming and proclaiming his authority when he says he has the keys to death and Hades, meaning he can put them in their place and walk away. He's in charge. It's important for us to remember that he's in charge and reigns over the past, present, and future for a couple of reasons. Number one, if there is an authority over everything, including death and hell, we should probably submit to that authority. If anyone is deserving of our surrender and full allegiance, it's the person who has all authority in heaven and earth. There is no one greater to worship or obey. So if anyone deserves our worship and obedience, it's God. Number two, it should encourage us that Jesus reigns over the past, present, and future. He has promised good to us, and nothing can thwart his plans. This is why we're told multiple times in Scripture to not worry or be anxious. He wants us to trust that he will provide for us and protect us as he has promised. And if we'll remember that he reigns over everything that ever was or is or is to come, we'll be more likely to trust in his promise to protect us. We'll find peace in the fact that nothing greater than him exists. No one has the keys to Jesus, right? He has the keys. This is the one that I want to entrust my soul to. This is the person I want caring for my eternity, the one who wants my good and has the keys to everything, including death and hell. Jesus is so many things. These are just three major components to the question, who is Jesus? One, he is fully God and fully man. Two, he lived, died, and rose again. And three, he reigns over the past, present, and future. The question for us is, do we believe it? This was Jesus' question for Martha in John 11, 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says, do you believe this? Just like he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Not who do others say that I am. Who do you say that I am? 
we need to answer these questions for ourselves first. But these truths are also part of our message to those who are far from God. We need to be able to tell people who Jesus is and let them answer if they believe these things. But like we covered in Bible study last week, they can't believe unless they hear, and they can't hear unless they're told who Jesus is. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so many things. You declared about yourself. You are the way, the truth, the life. You are the door. You are the good shepherd. You're the light of the world. We read in Scripture that you are a friend of sinners, son of man, king of kings, lord of lords, the beginning and the end. God, I pray that as we live lives and claim to know you and to live for you, that these would be aspects of who you are that we, that we cling to, that we walk in the truth of these things, that we, we shouldn't fear because who, who is our Jesus? He's the one with the keys to everything, the authority to everything in heaven and earth. We shouldn't fear uh, where we're going to end up when this life is over because you are a redeemer. You are a substitution. You are the lion and the lamb. We shouldn't fear the enemy because you are an authority over him. That battle is already won. We shouldn't fear man because we should fear the one uh, who is sovereign over mankind, who created mankind. So God, remind us, Jesus, remind us of who you are, not only so that we would walk in those truths, but that we would extend that truth to others. That when we see our neighbors who are far from you and the different ways that sin and brokenness is manifested in their lives, we would be thinking of Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. That if maybe it's a broken family, that we remember that God is a father to the fatherless. That if it's someone struggling with addiction, we remember that you are sovereign over those things and that you set the captives free and break the chains of sin and bondage. God, I pray that you would show us again clearly that as we look to you and who you are, that you would stir in us love for you and affection for you and eagerness and obligation to share who you are with others. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. We trust and we hope in you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.